and welcome back to Infernal Contraptions. In this episode, Phil and I chat with the inimitable Mr. Pete Brown. One thing you become hyper aware of when you spend time with Pete is that A, he's a proper engineer and knows how to do things properly, but also B, he can make do and mend brilliantly when he needs to. As you can probably tell from the beginning of the chat, I remain a bit in awe of Pete and Phil, the kind of blokes who can mend anything with an old yo-yo string and know from their fingers whether a bolt is torqued up properly and isn't about to just let go. I worry about how we'll pass along these skills and the only way I can think of is through apprenticeships. Maybe that could be a future topic as we also have a youngster at the oily rag. If you want to hear what motivates Pete, and I'm sure it's true of the rest of us oily nuts, listen from around 11 minutes in when he talks about bringing things back to life. One comment I've had about these podcasts was that it's refreshing to hear normal people talk about something other than the Guernsey finance industry. If you want to get involved or have something to say about our mutual obsessions, email me at tim.loveridge at gmail.com and maybe we can have a chat and record it. This podcast is slightly different from the ones that have come along so far, insofar as, well, A, we're back at the Oily Rag, which is become, becoming the Oily Rag Studios for me, uh, but also um, we're actually having a chat with more than one person. So Phil's joining me again. Welcome back, Phil. And also, we're um, kind of in conversation with an overseas guest tonight um, that, um, that we like to call a crapo, obviously. We can talk about that as Gerns. But so our overseas guest, I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Pete Brown. Good evening. Good evening. Okay, and um, so... You know crapos come from Gertrude. Not crapos. Oh, yeah, that's a shit start, isn't it? So, <laughs> well, uh, grockle. I, I actually already. wrote down grockle as well. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I called crapos. So, I, yeah, so I'll, I'll do some editing. So, that's such a nice start. I as think well. that's good. I think you chose your fallible. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fallible for sure. <laughs> um, I guess it's because I was nervous a bit. Um, so... The, the only, up until recently, the only, the only knowledge I had of Mr. Pete Brown was the fact that you were, joined, you were on the WhatsApp group and sometimes you'd chip into yeah. various conversations. But now we, we find ourselves in the company of, of, of yourselves. And, um, and you're over here, I think, just on a bit of a break, but you're clearly doing some engineering work as well at the Oily Rag, so we probably want to talk about that at some point. But let me start by asking a bit about yourself. So, so introduce yourself, Pete. Talk to us about who you are. Um, I'm a farmer's son, and um, father was always tinkering about with bits of machinery. He'd um, helped out in the war on the machinery side of things, you know, but uh, not in any great capacity, but he'd learned to weld and, and fit and so on. So I was always brought up in an environment where he was fixing tractors or bits of farm machinery. And, um, and so rather than push me into farming or whatever, he sort of encouraged uh, what bit of aptitude I had, and I played in Meccano, and as you do, you know. Indeed, yeah. And then um, sort of eventually went the engine, it was keener on engineering, so did metal work at school. And then um, when I was 16, I uh, applied for an apprenticeship uh, as a marine engineer officer with P&O, and um, that involved four-year apprenticeship, and I spent two years in Portsmouth, and then a year at sea, and then another year in South Shields, gained some qualifications, and then went to sea as a junior engineer, and was marine engineer for quite some time, and um, um, at the end, then I retired a few years ago, and just carried on tinkering about with things. Because your, your accent gives you away as not being a local Guernsey person. So where, where were you born? I was born in Stoke-on-Trent. Right. And um, that is how, because we lived in, in, in the area, or just on the outskirts of Stoke-on-Trent, that's how I came to, to meet Phil, because he was... I was at, worked at Royal Dalton. At the... The Home Street Laboratories. And I was very hungry and poor. So it ruled off the friends. Yeah, okay. Beats, yeah. They, um, they fed me. And it was good. And they kept you, okay. So yeah. you've known each other for a long time. So when did you yeah, first 40, meet them? Uh, well, it must be 40 years because. 20, 21, 20, 21. Something like that. Because, yeah. I, I, was, because I was away at sea, then I would come home for. I, I would sort of do four months away and then four months at home. Well, it was two months you got then, it was two for one, but later it became one for one. 
but uh, so I had sort of quite considerable spells at home and I wasn't working so um, then you get so to like meet people and, and through a mutual friend that's how yeah. I met Phil. But always around bikes. But always yeah the motorcycle always was, around the, bikes and was, the, was the common thread. Before we go into the bikes, I just wanted to, so so clearly engineering on ships. So so you were what, in, the, in the boiler room, you know, as they say. I mean, where, what were you doing there? So um, I was a, a first engineer or second engineer working on the ship, just basically um, maintaining the fabric of the of the vessel. So everything, and then um, engineers are, are somehow uh, sort of responsible for pretty well everything other than the navigation of the vessel so just maintain it making sure because the engine might be running for a week or 10 days or whatever non-stop so you've got to be a ship's like a city so you've got to maintain you know you've got to keep the lights on keep the sanitation working the refrigeration all those things come into the engineer's remit so other than the propulsion and of course you've got to preparation and the transfer and treatment of fuel to keep the engine going and the, every aspect really so it's a very marine engineers training is very broad because obviously if you're miles away from land you can't call on anybody to come and help you so when I was started at sea you know you made a lot of parts and never threw anything away because if you had a worn out pump you know you could always machine it and make wearings or make other parts of the bits that you've got left. So there's always a work, busy workshop on older vessels particularly. So like a proper um, machine shop, I suppose. Did you have yeah. that type of lathes and mills? Yeah, and things we had like a lathe and gunning machine and power hacks. Or, um, it's, not, it's not much the same. It's not as, as basic... Um, what should I say now? It's a different way now because the parts tend to get sent out and the way that ships are, are more automated now. So a lot of the stuff that we ha- had to make parts for don't exist anymore. You know, the, the early ships I was on uh, a lot of steam plant as well as wow, okay. um, as the, the diesel engine as well. So you had to both sides of it, so the steam and the motor side of it was involved where steam ships now are few and far between, you know. So it's a a very broad, very broad experience. Everything you know, you might be repairing a desk in an office one day, you know, a coffee machine the next, or you know, toilet the next, and yeah. then um, pulling a piston out of the main engine the next day. So it's just something different all the time, you know. So you have a lot of experiences, and you have to be able to fix it because you can't just say, "Well, we'll get somebody in." Yeah. So that gives you um, a sort of a broad training. How to fix yeah. and and a different approach mm-hmm. with regards to where you, your first option is not to look for somebody else to help, but you look at how to fix it yourself. You know, and how do I get around that? How can I make that work? And even if I can't fix it completely, can we at least fix it enough to get to port where we can do something about it? So, a bit different approach than sort of. But, but really, having to improvise a lot to survive, I suppose. Yeah, because I, I wanted to touch on something. So your wife has been over, and yeah. she says something to me about welding. About both of you were welding, yeah, um, and uh, and your early experiences of welding, which was a fascinating conversation. Which I want to dig into <laughs> a bit. But, I mean, why were you both welding? And you were doing because fun, I had a bit of a fun. break and, um, when the children were small. I didn't want to be away from the kids too much, so I had a break from uh, marine engineering and. and started doing a little bit of welding and fabrication in the sort of uh, farming community. Okay. You know, we'd make gates and railings and things like all sorts of stuff. Had a mobile welder behind an old Land Rover like Phil's got there. And um, one of the jobs, we used to, one of the jobs that came in, somebody wanted some bits and pieces made. And, um, you know, you use whatever labour you've got on hand and it happened to be the wife, you know. <laughs> so taught her to use a MIG welder and I'd be bending a bit of strip and she could be tacking it together. So, you know, we'd be working till late at night, but that's what you've got to do if you've got, you know. Yeah. If you yeah. want to get on, you've got to work hard, you know, and that's 
top and bottom of it, isn't it? It's a good apprenticeship, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, so. Okay, so talk to me about bikes then, because I mean, I did, was it his fault? Was it Phil's fault? No, or were the, you already the, there? It, it, it goes back a little bit before bikes, that, that because, as I said, my father used to fix things. And I remember when I was about 11, we went to an old scrapyard where he was getting some bits for a tractor. And there was an old stationary engine there. And um, I must have looked as though I'd take fancy this thing. And I remember him giving up a couple of quid, that's all it was, for this thing. And um, it was seized solid. And I remember he fetched it, an old cow trailer, in the back of this trailer, when he, whatever bits and pieces, this was him with it. When we got home, with it jumping about in the old trailer, it had freed off, you know. So I remember us having it on a clear as it's because it was an we talk about epiphanies. It was a it was a special moment because we had to standing on a couple of railway sleepers and um, had a magneto on the side, you know, mm. looking at the mag. And I'm only eleven, but I got a rough idea of how engines work because I'd seen it and cleaned the plug, you know, and wound the handle and this great big spark, you know, and then very basic carburetor on the thing and. Um, clean that out and put a drop of juice in the carb and turn the handle a couple of, and this thing just burst into life you know <laughs> and and that was it that was uh, that I thought it was like Dah! you know yeah. the sun came out and, and it was that moment <laughs> of, of where you've got an inanimate object just made out of steel and yeah. you know and basically that's brass you know and you've taken it from being dead to alive you know, I completely so, agree. Yeah, uh, and yeah. that feeling, I thought I can do this. You know, this is what I want to do. I want to know more about engines, and and I want to make old engines work because that feeling of perhaps it's very sort of pompous to think. You know, you you brought something to life, but it's it, and that as that's still what drives me as much as anything else is that selfish sense of achievement that you've actually made something work that wasn't working before you know so then the first bike was was somebody mentioned that they'd been um chased by the constabulary <laughs> along the road on an old bantam and it had it had packed in and they'd abandoned it in a ditch and i could have it for a fiver if i went and fetched it because they weren't in a position to go and get this so, again, wrote me dad in. It could have been the same trailer. I don't know. We fetched this Bantam. And it, was only, it could have only been about 14, maybe then. And uh, it was an old plunger frame Banty, you know. And uh, got it home. And by now I'd learnt a bit about fixing. And the old man again, give me a hand with it. Got this thing started. And I was king of the road, you know. <laughs> Jeff Smith all over again. So I used to ride it around the fields. And... Um, oh, I bet I got it up to 15 mile an hour or something like this. I guess they get and um, and that was it really. I was just captivated. Yeah. So I concur uh, with all that. You know, those moments of uh, they're very special. They are. It was and it was special. And then I can't remember. An old man was a bit of a wheeler dealer, so he must have. I think he. He must have decided to buy a car off some chap who had a garage. And when we got to this garage, this is a little bit later, and there was a Panther and sidecar. Wow. Uh, uh, okay. uh, 120, the 120 spring frame deluxe, even. <laughs> 650 Panther. And it had a, the sidecar was a Busmar Astral. The big ones, it looked like a gondola off a Zeppelin. You know, okay, you completely up. lost me now, but yeah. <laughs> but you know what it is, don't you, Phil? You, know. you can have a party. A double party. adult <laughs> child and goat, you know. <laughs> huge thing. So, and in those days, bizarrely, uh, you had to, uh, as a learner, you were restricted to a 250cc solo motorbike or any capacity motorbike and sidecar. Which are the most dangerous things on the planet. <laughs> it is, when you consider you're also allowed to take passengers which yeah. you weren't on a solo. You know. So, so um, I bought the Panther and um, got it going. Got a licence out on the road. And then that was the second thing, you know. 
it's freedom at last, that sense of freedom and that being having been able to scoot along faster than everybody else, you know, on your own, in your own world, you know. So the first time on the road. That was first my first time, first bike I owned properly yeah. on the road that you know been around roundabout, but not in any legal capacity anyway. And and that was it. I could go to places, you know. I could keep girls out now because I've yeah. got a sidecar. But I didn't realise that they're not the best bird puller or something. <laughs> you know, that's the last thing you want to go in. So, uh, so that was it. And I've got a theory that that. The reason that people... That feeling that you get, and everybody has it, don't they, when they're first out on the road and on a, in a proper capacity, you yeah. know, that is it. And I think motorcyclists spend the rest of their lives trying to recapture that moment. I think that's why people have more than one motorcycle and why they keep buying faster bikes or whatever, because it's narcotic once you've had that experience you keep trying to find that again that's a really know. interesting theory yeah because well, we're all guilty of owning more than one bike yeah. right so because you're trying to recapture that feeling that you had yeah. all those years ago that that's just well, that's my theory <laughs> so that was so then after that came just a succession of of or motorcycles that didn't go and then I managed so to that they all going. started off broken, or did you ever buy one? Most of them were broken okay. because I didn't have any money to buy anything because I spent it on drinking and women. <laughs> what was left over went on motorcycles then. And um, because we lived on a farm and were up in the hills, um, there was lots of old bikes that had been abandoned on farms, you know. So particularly things like uh, trials bikes and stuff that had just been cut about and ridden around the fields. Yeah, not Triumph Cubs and stuff like that, I suppose. I had a Tiger Cup at one time. I had all sorts. Um, I worked out the other day, I was thinking, I think it must have had about 20 or 25 bikes over that period. And I had about 15 at a time, you know, everything from a dot to... I had a Dr. James. I had a Greaves Silverstone, which I used to ride around on the road with no lights, tacks and... Helmet. Not a helmet, not a worry in the world, you know. Because this is around the Peak District, and then, but one of the common sort of um, uh, denominators all the way through is, uh, has been a BSA. Not it's just happened that I've always had a BSA roundabout okay. somewhere or other. You know, there's always been one there. Whether when it was a say that my first bounty, and then I had a C11 G when I was. Courting, and then I had the B31, which is. And is it? Are you particularly fond of BSAs, or it just it just, just happened happens that way? And they were a good bike, you know, as are lots of other bikes. But uh, it's just something that it just happened that way, and there was a lot of them made, you know. Yeah. So um, nothing to be afraid of. So why not give it a go? Doesn't matter what it is, you know. And if it's got an engine, I'll have a go. At it. I'll, you know. Don't matter how many wheels, you know, give it a go. Or no wheels at all, though. Caterpillar tractor, I've had some. So the collection sort of not only just up to motorcycles, but I've had tractors and crawlers and lots what of What is it about tractors? Why, why are motorcyclists attracted to tractors? It's just, that seems to be I a... I think they're just attracted a, to anything, anything that goes. Yeah, or anything go. with an engine yeah. in it, you know. <laughs> you know. Why not? Give it a it go. It doesn't have a computer. It doesn't, that's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Perhaps they understand it. Yeah. I don't know. It's mm. just, I think, particularly sort of old, older, most old people who are interested in vintage vehicles, I suppose it's the whole vintage thing, isn't it? You know, old stuff that you can understand. Mm. You know, they were made with that, with sort of the owner did the maintenance in mind. That's when they were, they were whether it's like the Ferguson that, Phil Scott or whatever, you know, that when they, that was one of the things that was behind the sale of it because people, a farmer, wouldn't buy anything that he couldn't maintain yeah. because that would be his first, you know, farmers are notoriously mean, you know. So the last thing they want to do is to keep going to the dealership to keep paying for something, do they? If they can, you know, they Absolutely, want to be yeah. able to do it themselves. They don't want to buy a tractor and then keep paying out to run it. You know, it's bad enough putting fuel in it, never mind paying to maintain it. So... 
in those days, that was a big marketing thing, as it was with these motorcycles, you know. Yeah, because I was kind of interested in that, because I was showing Phil, I think, ages ago, we... Um, I had a T-shirt made of uh, it was a Triumph T120. There's a label on the side of the seat of, of the of the Triumph, and it's got you can service the whole bike just on the information that's on the label, and it's an amazing <laughs> yeah. thing. And you're going, my God, look at all the you know you didn't need a manual because they thought through the label so carefully. Yeah. And then like the the Beamer I've got at the moment, you look at the manual that I've got compared to the modern bikes. The manual shows how to do the oil changes. It shows how to you know lots and lots of things in there. Um, that you would never expect to see on a modern bike because they don't want you to touch the thing. They don't want you to, I mean, my Ducati, I can't buy the workshop manual for it. They won't let me, which I find appalling. I'm, yeah, you know, I suppose the manufacturers made an assumption that that you would have some sort of prior knowledge yeah. before you bought it, you know, or if you were going to buy it, then you must be able to maintain it. They didn't think that they got, you know, when you went along to buy it. Apart from the fact that oh, you put the petrol in here, and they, you, you know they got you started, and you were away, weren't you? There wasn't yeah. much aftercare once they'd flogged it to you. You, yeah. were, you were sort of away and off to work. But yeah. now they assume you're an imbecile, right? I don't know. They just assume you've got plenty of money. So. Well, yeah, I guess that's what it comes down to. Yeah. I assume I've never had a new motorcycle <laughs> in my life, so I don't know. You know, they just look. You know, so that's. So what's your current bike situation? How many bikes have you got there? I've got much diminished now. So I've got, I've got a Triumph TRW, the old side valve bike. Okay. What year? Uh, that's, it's 1954 it was made, I believe. But it was um, supplied to the RAF and then it was sort of demobbed in 1960. And that's got a nice story because it belonged to the father of a mutual friend of ours. Yeah. Um, so I've known this bike as long as I've known Phil and this mate of ours, his dad had this bike and then when his father um, got a bit too, too old and sort of went into a um, well, not a home but when he sort of uh, sheltered housing or whatever it was um, Belf mentioned that Belf said his name yeah, <laughs> well, I don't yeah Belf said um, would I be interested or did I know anybody who'd be interested in this in his dad's bike and I said yeah I know the bike so, so uh, I bought his dad's bike so it's only apart from the RAF it's only had one previous owner wow that's a nice old thing and I mean, it's the question we Phil and I covered it in a previous podcast, but the question of patina I think is always interesting yeah. because you know uh, how shiny or otherwise do you like your bikes? I mean, what condition is that? Is that, that bike in? is exactly as his dad painted it in 1960. It came out came from the RAF, and I, I don't know whether he painted. I don't think he painted it at all. I think he added a bit of stream uh, of pinstripe. Pinstripe. Yeah. But Ralph yeah. says it was done with a yard brush. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, but it's not, it's fine, you know. So it's exactly as his dad had it. And has it required much maintenance? Or I mean, how many well, miles do you do every year? I mean, is, Sorry? Is it used a lot? Yeah, I use yeah. it quite a bit. I enjoy riding it because it's rigid. Yeah. And the telescopic front end, but rigid back end. And I enjoy riding it. And uh, I haven't done anything really to it apart from... Um, they've got a bit of a, an unusual carburetor on it. So I've taken that off and put a... Uh, a later carburetor. They've got a um, like a it's like a, almost like a stationary engine carburetor. I think it can run okay. anything from mess to mazole. You know? Yeah. And um, but they're, they're they're a bit of a um, bit fickle. So at the moment I'll put a concentric on it so that so that I can use it on the road. But I will. I've got now I've got a spare carburetor. And I think between the two I can make a decent one and put the same on the forty. No, they it's a great, no, it's really a great big, it's, 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 yeah, it's similar, but it's a, a great big thing as about that. Yeah, I've got an army B40, which yeah. has a weird carburetor on it. I think the ministry the specify these. Generally activity. speaking, they were a brass pole with a load of holes drilled in and a flat. Wow. <laughs> are they sort of Amol carbs or something, or what, what's no, that? No, it's a Solex. Solex, okay. I think it's a Solex on the one that's done it. Yeah. But but that's that's pretty well as it was in when it, in 1960, and then um, I've got a BSA A10 that I did. We had a swap. Yeah. Oh, this is between the two of you. Yeah. This is it. Okay. 
Well, Pete bought a bike from me 40 years ago. It's a B31. It's now in the, in the workshop here. And um, when I, when we reacquainted ourselves with each other, we, he's still got it in the shed, and I, I couldn't believe it anyway. He's a sucker for a, um, a deal. And I had this really scabby uh, super rocket, which turned out to be a bit of a dog. But but in my defence, I didn't know it was a dog. <coughs> anyway, so there's, uh, there's been some discussion about that. But um, we're doing. We're, I wanted to repatriate the BSA because it's a Guernsey bike, and it uh, should it went to a good home, and it, it did come back bit. here, and it's going to be available. It's being used as a teaching aid at the moment. I've got um, one of the guys that comes down here. We're teaching him to have some finesse. Indeed, and, and that's uh, got a beautiful patina. patina that has got a nice patina. Yeah, yeah. the patina is fabulous yeah, on that. It is. But the A10, the only thing I've done to that, the only bits I've painted are the bits that I repaired because there were there were some few holes where they shouldn't have been and over the years where bits had rusted and like the mud guard, you know, and they, somebody had put a bit of tin on it and just yeah. kept it going basically yeah. is whatever you know what you did. So that's the and um, but the rest of what what hasn't been repaired hasn't been touched or left that little left because in my opinion chrome and paint do not make you go any quicker or do it they they are you don't require they're not required for engineering are they? no they don't they just you know they're not an engineering aid they're just a a, a marketing aid aren't they yeah. that's the only thing you know I mean so they just put chrome and paint on things to sell them they don't you, you know an engine manufacturer's not going to spend his money making it look pretty you'd prefer him to spend it on design and quality of build wouldn't you well I would you'd hope so yeah yeah because I mean it is interesting how some of these bikes are still going I mean you know some of the bikes that we've ridden recently you look at them you think that well that's never going to start and uh, and sure enough like second or third kick invariably there it goes I mean I don't know if it'll stop but it'll start and uh, it's just, uh, just such an experience, really. I think there's a lot to be learned from looking back, looking at history about the development of things and how they come about. And then you can understand why things are the way they are. You know, if you're taking yeah. something about apart, you might think, well, what does that bit do? Or what does that do? And why is that like that? And the designer didn't put extra things in... For, for no reason. There's a reason that that bolt's the size it is. There's a reason why that casting's like it is, you know. And if you understand a bit of history, then it makes sense. Then you can see, well, that's a development, you know, that's come from there or that's what it was. And when the early days of engineering and like that stationary engine, there was no way of determining how strong a component was without trial and error, mm -hmm. because you didn't have any computers or no, whatever. So yeah. consequently, you know, if you made a, a, a gear or a connecting rod or a flywheel a particular size and you ran the engine and it exploded, then you made it bigger, you know, and if, or heavier or thicker, you know, and if you were going to sell it to the public, you know, then, and you wanted it to last a long time, then you would make it a little bit heavier again. And you think, well, right, that's going to last, you know. And consequently, that's why you've got... I had an engine that was 1895, a gas engine. Right. And it ran as sweet as a nut because everything was huge and massive. But it only developed about four horsepower. But it weighed nine and a half a tonne, you know. <laughs> but you're laughing, but it's well, still yeah, it's, running it's not, today. Yeah, it's not going to wear That's out, the is thing. It? Yeah, because right. it was... The, there was no sort of... Um, there was guesswork got it was guesswork but there was no um no no opposite from guesswork i suppose no computers to say right you can get away with a casting an eighth of an inch thick there and half an inch there and or whatever you know if it if it oh, that's if they made things that's too big eventually they worked out they could make them smaller until they blew up and then well, they that, that's right and that's roughly where it was whereas now it's all done on a computer and you get away with the bare minimum so if a component if it's still strong enough, being a few millimetres thick with perhaps a web down it, then they'll make it like that yeah. for economy and 
you know, instead of making it an inch thick. But the downside of it is longevity, you know, yeah. and abuse. You know, if you hit a flywheel that's three inches thick and weighs 500 weight with a sledgehammer, it, it's just going to ring like a bell and do nothing. You hit the side of your Hayabusa yeah. with a sledgehammer and it's not going to come damage. off too yeah. well, you know. <laughs> so, but so that is the thing I think with the old motorcycles. That's why they were why they've lasted so long because they tend to air on the the right side of course and make things bigger and heavier and stronger, just in case, you know. But I guess the other thing I'm interested because we we touched on it, we, we talked about two, two strokes and stuff the other day, didn't we? But but um, metallurgy. Uh, bearings I'm very interested in all of those types of things because they that all you know because it's, it's not just the thickness of the material it's the it's the type of materials that can now be developed and refined yeah. and mixed you know to, to make different types of metals and also the bearing technology is has changed fundamentally from bits of brass rubbing against each other with you know with oil between the two hopefully uh, to all these different types of bearings you get you know playing with tapered rollers and all this type of thing I mean do you just touch on you, how you see that well, and the, the way I s- that. yeah uh, if, if again if you look at early the early days of motoring and motorcycling um, they tried all sorts of things and things like um, overhead cams um, fuel injection all the things that you take for granted now you know they tried it. But they did it a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, yes, yeah. Right, if yeah. you look at some of those racing cars that would go, you know, back, go banging around Brooklands, you know, they were overhead to cams, they've got V12s, they've got all sorts of stuff. But they were, you, you, you're referring to metallurgy, you know. They didn't have, they, they had the right ideas, but they couldn't make it work because they didn't understand or they didn't have access to the to the machinery and the metallurgy that we've got today. Yeah. So some of the ideas were tried and didn't work and some they persevered with, you know, and, they, and, and, and it sort of came about. But there's nothing really new today. It's just that we can make it work today because you can do it on a computer before you build the engine, you know. You yeah. can try and see, well, what happens if I rev that component to 15,000 RPM, you know, and you or find that... You can simulate all that, whereas it was done through racing and done through competition, like the Vela sets and things like that. They were it was sort of test to destruction, wasn't it? You know, and if it, and you've got to give things like Manx Nortons and things that they're due. They were struggling towards the end, but they sort of what they were achieving out of a basic single cylinder motorcycle was staggering. It was yeah. day when yeah. they were competing against multi-cylinder bikes you know they it it's it's a credit to them really because they they understood the subject and you know it did yeah because i was just thinking that i guess the other the big seminal change was repeatability production engineering you know where the precision could be repeated honda you know um you know and all the the other big japanese manufacturers that, that could after the sand casting, but they but they, they, they got to a stage where they could repeat the material, the tolerances, mm. uh, everything, you know, time and time again, which was something that I guess was such a big sea of change in the 70s, I guess, isn't it? I suppose I so. And, 60s, and, 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 and the, I mean, there's reams been written about the demise of the sort of European motorcycle industry, you know, when you hit on the subject there, repeat with regard, repeatability with regards to tolerances and machining and things like that. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we're riding around on now was was built with clapped out machinery. That yeah, had, the tooling that was worn, wasn't it? War, yeah. you yeah. know, and um, been turning out tanks one minute and then they're making bottom ends the next, you know. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it's just things go round and round don't they you know at the time that the I suppose motorcycles weren't seen as um, an important thing to invest your money in because Mini came out they did uh, yeah and, and cars were getting cheaper and because you could make stuff cheaper you know then you're not gonna do um, then you could make cars cheaper and 
people would rather have a car than a motorbike stay for, dry and warm, yeah. for the same price, you know, so sort of in the UK they sort of had their day, didn't they, at that they seem the time, to, yeah. and, and say the old machinery and just couldn't repeat those tolerances, so people complain about older bikes and, you know, they leak oil or they do this, that and that. Not many of them leaked oil when they were brand new, when they yeah. came out of the factory. Yeah. But the, they certainly, when they've had the benefit of five or six owners' <laughs> attention. Fiddling with it, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember what the phrase was you that you used. But um, about uh, people sort of doing their best for it, you know. And uh, trying to get your favourite jointing material apart with a screwdriver and a hammer, yes. yes. <laughs> That's where you wished you'd use the Hylomar and not the red hermitite. <laughs> oh yeah, well I go with the red hermitite as a problem, yes. But if I think of one theme that runs between, certainly from what I know of the two of you, it's about, it's British bikes. So you seem to have a thing about British bikes, is that fair? Um, no, I think Phil's got broader... Um, I've got well, Japanese bikes as yes, well. He's got a broader interest. You're, you're not that. averse to um, American stuff, are you? Can well, I'll try anything if it's cheap. I'll go. No, I've got. I've got. He's a, got one of those got Harley got things sports and, uh, as well. And, oh, uh, what size sports? A twelve hundred. A twelve hundred. Okay. Yeah, but more because I hadn't had one before. But I'm drawn to, un, like the reason I had bought the, like the TRW and I had a Sunbeam S Seven and I had. I've got a square four, was because they're just, from the engineering point, they're just different engines yeah. that I didn't know about, you know. Mm. So I'm yet to have a diesel motorcycle, but I mean, that's got to come, isn't it? Or steam, that look. <laughs> we could build a steam engine here, Phil. <laughs> well, I think we should. <laughs> yeah. No. Yes, no, I, I uh, have a weakness for Japanese stuff because I'm that little bit younger than Pete, not much, and started on Jap stuff, so... I've still got my bikes from when I was young. Which are little, aren't they? Little ones, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, have that, I remember that same thing that you were talking about, about that sense of freedom. I'm, suddenly I'm free. I, I remember going up to the top of our road from home on my Suzuki 100, where in those days you got an L-plate and a motorcycle and you just rode. It. There was nothing mm. to stop you. I got to the end of the road and it was like... Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I could go left or right. I don't ever have to come home. <laughs> Except to get more money from mum and dad to get some more fuel. But yeah. well, there's yeah. usually a, a, only a short time between that first nervous ride out and then the first crash. Yeah, yes. Because yes. the market is about a week before I <laughs> drove the Panther and Sidecar up a hedge. Because in that week, you think you've learnt as much as Jeff Duke, you know. So, <laughs> but obviously not, and he's never ridden a panther either, I wouldn't have thought, you know. But so I came to, and had to be towed ignominiously home behind my dad's tractor, because <laughs> it was too heavy to push. <laughs> yes. But um, that's what it's all about, though, isn't it? That's yeah. what it, it's all about. Yeah. So far, I've got a, I've got a Triumph, a BSA, and a Harley. So, is anything else in your garage at the moment, or your storehouse, or warehouse, whatever it is? Um, you mentioned the area. Oh, oh yeah, the Square Four, and then um, Square Four is an interesting bike. It is an interesting bike. Yeah. So, where did that come from? That came from a bloke I bought a few bikes from who lived in Macclesfield. Actually, had a few things from, and um, again, it was. a I can't remember if I'd seen him one one or not, but I got chatted about it, and he had one, and I thought, God, and I had the money to buy it. it. Cost seven hundred quid, which was quite a lot of money that back then. You know. Perhaps I shouldn't have bought it. Bought something else. But anyway, <laughs> so but I've had that for about oh God, thirty-five years or something like that. More than that. Maybe. Is that a runner? Is that working? Not at the moment. It 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 came to a painful halt. So, but I'm in the process of rebuilding the engine now. So I've done, got all the bits and pieces, and I think you, you shared some of your videos on the WhatsApp so, group, didn't you? Yeah. So I've got I've got the assembly process to put together now. It's just one of those things that, like Pandora's box, once you opened it, there was 
more and more bits and pieces that needed yeah. needed doing. You think it's about a very poor state for the, the yeah, small. It, it, I mean, it ran very well until it stopped. <laughs> as a lot of bikes do, you know. Somebody wants to always try them so like that, you know. They never go as well until about ten Just minutes before they yeah. pack in, you know. And you think, God, this is really going quick. There goes pop. <laughs> but so yeah, so I fixed that, and then we'll be back on the road. But it's very smooth and interesting, but flawed, like a lot of you know. That's the best type, though, isn't it? Not if you own one, it is. What? <laughs> Not if you were. It's the best sort of, yeah, yeah. good to talk about, but the, the, there's, there's weakness. It's okay. it, it was a great design, and in its, if it, it had it been, it suffered like a lot of great designers' um, uh, bikes did. That once it got from the designer to the management, it all went wrong. It was designed. Um, to take up the same and to fit in a single cylinder aerial frame so they made a little overhead cam four cylinder 500 okay. engine which is a great idea and, and revolutionary you know an overhead cam it was, bef- overhead. It was before the war wasn't it? it was now about 1938 or something yeah. um, overhead cam say four cylinder and it fitted in the frame and it, and and it would have been great. And they made one or two, and then the war came along. And then after the war, um, they decided that everybody must have been weakened by rationing, you know, so would, <laughs> would so they'd need a motorbike sidecar to cart them about, you know, and they got, got families or whatever. So it just grew bigger and bigger. And like so many ideas, you know, um, it it straight from the brief really yeah. and when you start to stretch a design that was meant to be one thing to something else it, it doesn't often work and I think Triumphs we were talking about the other day yeah. and the, the little 350s and the Tiger 100 the 500s a beautiful little engine you know and they stretch it a bit and made the Bonnie again which is a, a, a great bike the 650 twin and but then couldn't resist and had to go one step further made the 750 Bonneville and they're a good bike but they're not as good as the, in my opinion as the smaller ones the engine was was just right as a, as a 500 it's a sweet, sweet engine it's light it's, it does everything that it was designed to do and it was designed by Turner as a, as a 500 yeah. you know and that's what he had in his head you know he didn't think oh we'll you know, make 500 and then we'll Increase. Oh, if if he wanted a seven fifty, he designed a seven fifty, you know. But um, I say it's. But Do you yeah. think history is repeating itself a bit with that? Because I, I was, I've just noticed with modern bikes, because I'm into modern bikes as well, is but you notice that, and I guess it was driven by emission laws more than anything else. Is the bikes have got bigger and bigger in capacity to put out the same horsepower but also meet the emission law, so Euro 5 and all this type of stuff. And I mean, you know, there's so, I don't know, 1350s and 1200s and stuff like that. It, it just seems, and they're such heavy things to manhandle around. And for me, I mean, I've gone back to little 300s and riding some of the 650s and stuff. They're an absolute joy. And they don't feel any real less powerful than the bigger bikes. But they're just, but it's just curious about how these things, because last year, they made a 1200 model. This year, the better version's got to be a 1250. You go, well, what's the logic of that? I don't really understand. Apart from people seem to be driven by this. It's a bit, I guess, like the sports bike era in the, you know, the 80s, I guess, when people just wanted something that was faster and faster, even though they couldn't necessarily handle it. People buy bikes for a different reason yeah. now than, the, than, the, than they did with these bikes that we were looking at around here. You know, and people used to go to work on a motorcycle. You, yeah, had, yeah. you had a bicycle, you know, um, and you aspired to owning a motorcycle to get to work because it was easier than pedalling a bike, you know. So then you, that's how firms that uh, had Villiers engines, and, you know, how they prospered. Cotton and Greaves and James and Son and Ambassador and a thousand and one other manufacturers all use those little Villiers engines, you know, and put them into affordable small bikes, Bantam, Tagaco, a bit more expensive, that, you know. But it was a go-to-work yeah. machine, 
and, and it meant that you could work further from home than where you could walk in, a, in an hour or whatever it was. And that's what motorcycling was about. There was luxury motorcycles for those that could afford it. But you talk about history repeating itself. Is that not what Honda do? You know, yeah. They have, have mobilised the world. Really. Haven't they just? They sit there on the Every, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I mean, uh, talk about style icon, or iconic machines. That Honda step through has got to be probably the, the mm. most revolutionary motorcycle. But it is over 100 million it, manufactured now. Yeah, it's I mean, that's crazy. If there's, if there's a number one bike in the world, that's got to be it's it. Got to be it, for sure. Because, uh, because it's made such a difference to so many lives. You know, yeah. If you were to stop making Harleys tomorrow or Hayabusas or Laverdas, it wouldn't make any difference. A few rich people might go and buy something else. But it isn't going to make any difference to their lives because they're not buying that machine for their, they're buying it for their lifestyle, yeah. but not to put bread in their mouths, you know. Yeah. And I think that's the great thing about so many of these machines here were were machines that people went to work on, and it and it it was it didn't matter whether you you were worked in a down a coal mine and you went to work on a banty, or you were a doctor and bought a Bella set maybe because you could afford to, but you still went on a bike, you know. And everybody bought them. They were for everybody, you know. They, and but now people don't go to work on motorcycles. Not in not in not the Western society. Western yeah. society. Not so same, much. Yeah. There's a few that do, and, and, and that's great. But the, I should imagine the bulk of them are bought just for recreation. Yeah, know? I do wonder whether there'll be a bit of a resurgence though after the COVID thing, because I, I know that bike sales in the UK are up at the moment because people are finding that that's the a good way of going back to what you were saying about yeah. the primary form of transport actually is a very convenient form of transport although I do wonder about how difficult it is to just pass your test in the UK with all the different stages you I have think, to go through I think electric yeah. bikes have got there's amazing potential I was going to talk to you about electric bikes. Yeah. I think there's amazing potential there if um, governments will let it happen mm. and not overcome any prejudices they might have about motorcycling generally, you know, because um, there's a lot of things they could do they, that they could make it easier and, and, and more accessible to, to, to ride motorcycles, but they, they never ever hear them mention, they talk about electric cars, but they don't, or buses or vans yeah. or whatever, but there's never any discussion about electric motorcycles, a little bit about scooters. Yeah. And electric bicycles are very popular, but why not electric motorcycles? I don't really understand. Is there such a difference apart from the pedals? It goes back to the Suzuki A50s with the pedals, you know. Is, is it so very different? I'm not sure. Apart from, you know, trying to get around certain laws, really. Mm. Have you ridden an electric motorbike? No. I'd like to have a go on one. I mean, there's a lot over here. At yeah. Moment, is it Sonsoko that they, they, they make the little ones, the equivalent of 125s? But I don't know if they've got a Harley Alive wire here yet or anything. It'd be very interesting to try them out because part of the, part of the joy of riding bikes for us is that just listening to the motor and seeing if it sounds like it's running right. And and I mean, we are always have the the added um, advantage of we are either going to get there or we're not. It's just like two chances. <laughs> and if, you're, if, you're, if the motor's singing along and you've got fuel, which has a bit of been a bit of an issue this week, running out of fuel here and there, but. You got, you know, you're listening to it. You're enjoying the motor. Um, I wonder sometimes if just whistling along quietly is going to have the same, yeah, kind of, uh, I don't know, pleasure. Whether, whether, whether you, yeah, will you be more or less detached from your surroundings? Yeah, you might thing, find you just. In, in you might have a chance to enjoy it more if you're not moments. worried about any minute. Is it going to nip up? You know, that's the thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. you, know, you can sort of talk yourself into paranoia if, you're, you know, if you've got a bike and you start, if you've got a rattle. Is that a new rattle? Is that an old rattle? Is that rattle getting worse? A, Does it what, get worse the faster I go? Does it get <laughs> worse when I ease up? And you, know, and you get to the point where you say, panic, and you think, I've got to stop now in case before, before it goes pop. You know, and actually nothing's happened at all. Yeah, it's just that... Just you've worked yourself. <laughs> you've worked yourself. Yeah. There's a top tip that John Wally, who came to visit us today, 
said was that uh, one of the best things you can do with that is to put earplugs inside your helmet before you put it on. Just, just forget the noises and just enjoy it for what it is. Don't worry about it. I'm just so detached that you get to the point where things are moving slower and you and, it, yes. and you, you wonder why I must be going uphill. No, no, it's just nipped up, you know. Just <laughs> But I mean, going back to your point about the, the noise or the lack of noise the electric bikes make, I mean, I think that the Charles bikes are very interesting at the moment because they, you know, the, they, they bought out um, quite a lot of very decent trials bikes electric ones and apparently they've added clutches now to put more control low speed control but of course those things are completely silent in the woods and in the in the wilderness and if you want to go back to nature i guess there's there's probably not a better way aside from walking what how else would you enjoy i don't know but i think that's quite attractive rather than upsetting the neighbors riding a motorbike through the no, through the lanes that's a very good point yes you can't just ride around and around the garden anymore there's too many too many people over here too many people to annoy I think yeah. Guernsey could be a very interesting study, really. For, you could make it work here because you haven't yeah. got um, sort of uh, big stretches of motorway or your carriageway or, and, and you've got sort of a limit, a speed limit, which is, you know, considering the type of roads you've got and the traffic you've got is, is very sensible. You'd like to think that you would get a lot more mileage out of your electric bike. It's the urban cycle. If you describe yeah. the urban cycle of an electric bike and how to ride it in Guernsey, it's a perfect match yeah. as far as I can make it. And that was the thought that if it was going to work anywhere, it's going to work here. Because you will realistically be able to ride around the island maybe on one charge. Yep. You know. Whereas if you were to do that up a motorway in England, you're just going to run out and yeah. you know, go in somewhere. So mm. because you've got shorter distances and you've got the, the, the smaller roads... And, and also range stuff. anxiety. We're never more than five miles from home anyway, so what's yeah. the worst that's going to so happen, you know? you could see that it would work yeah. really well here and, and, and a good place to do some interesting development, I would have mm. thought, because it's bound to happen once you get... <laughs> something there's going to be somebody's going to do something with it and yeah. I can make it go quicker or I can make it yeah. chip them chip, do something well it's already going on now isn't it I mean so there's people yeah. chipping the push bikes the electric really? bikes oh yeah they've been chipping them for a while they? yeah because they're supposed to be limited to 15 miles an hour and you're going that guy's not doing 15 miles an hour more like 25 so, well, that's just, yeah because yeah. so, there's a certain what's it um, so many what 15 kilowatt hours or whatever it's, yeah, it's limited to insurance or yeah, license. But uh, but yeah, they've they've already started chipping it. But that's so. what's driven the development yeah, of a cool. lot of these bikes that are here, hasn't it? Norton and yeah. well, the two of yeah, the Norton and the Bella set. I mean, that was the desire to go faster. Yeah. But they were. But the the people who were buying it were going to work. But I suppose it's that inference that you're not right. You know, we've got we've made our bike go. 100 miles an hour and you're riding something very similar of the same pedigree you know and it's that that's the marketing or is it win on Sunday sell on Monday (laughs) (laughs) yeah go over yeah it's um, interesting the desire to speed is is it's good you know it's addictive isn't it 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 is addictive and and it's what drives development as well. If everybody, you know, you built a bike and it did 20 miles an hour and, you know, you don't sort of, it would be bizarre to think everybody thought, wow, that's great, you know, mm. we'll stick with that, you know. But, you know, nobody's going to, it's just a human thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know. Isn't it a strange thing that Veloset tried it with their, their LE motorcycles and uh, it, it failed miserably and yeah. massive investment broke the company effectively. And then Honda did it and were successful and every man motorcycle the old step through yeah that's all they were trying to do yeah to make something that was easy to use and reliable and quiet it wasn't exciting but they failed and Honda didn't yeah you can be bogged down by your past can't you that's the thing if you know they were trying to sell sort of new ideas to uh an established yeah, bunch well, of buyers who would... You it know, did look like a wedge of cheese, didn't you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, so you, yeah, you, as as if you've yeah. got somebody, if you've, it's a first-time buyer, never, and just happy 
to have a motorcycle that'll do everything, mm. you know, then he hasn't got any prejudices. But if no. he's been used to, you as can't you say, say that you can't say that the Honda step through was a typical motorcycle design. No, but if for somebody who's never had a bike before in, in Asia or wherever, you know, and he just wants something to take him and his missus and his family and everybody else on, you know, but, and it's the right price, you know. Yeah. And talk about bomb proof, I mean, these things are so reliable, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I, I was, I, I think. Marketing's got a lot to play in it as well. I mean, what's that? You meet the nicest people on a Honda, you know, I mean, absolute. Because there, there was such that, that um, kind of a link between, um, I don't know, the um, um, rockers and um, um, cafe racing and all that type of stuff and the ton-up boys and things with bikes like the Velocets and the Nortons. Whereas Honda just went for a completely different market. You know, it was the, the girl next door that wanted to go down to the shops. You know, and actually genius of marketing to try and find a different market completely. And, and the timing was good. It was, yeah. As well, wasn't it? Because it was... After the sixties, where people were, um, people becoming more affluent, design of things would change. People wanted new things and, and different than the parents had had. You know, the war was over, and for a lot of people, it wasn't. You know, they couldn't, they weren't, had no connection to the war. If you were sort of in the seventies, because yeah. it hadn't. You know, and so those old-fashioned British design that had had, had done. A previous generation, well, you know, people oh, I'll buy that because I had my dad had one and I had mine and it lasted all through the war and kept us going on full petrol and one of the. When you've got a new generation of people coming along, they're, they're not interested in that. And know? a very rebellious generation as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so you don't need to buy British or, or whatever it is, and then you come along with something that's bright and modern and and you don't get your. You know, Mary Quant dressed dirty when you get on, which is why the scooters did. Absolutely, so yeah. Vespers and Vespers, yeah. It's all, it's all about yeah. timing and things, at, you know, at the right time, and and that's how things are. It's very difficult to 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 maintain anything for long, you know, for forever, is it? You know, it is, yeah. Cultures and products just have a lifespan, and it just mm. happened. That, I mean, good God, they've been going since Brunel's day. You know, the Industrial Revolution. Britain had a fair crack at it, you know, and it was inevitable that eventually they're just going to run out of steam, aren't they, you know, and somebody else picks the button up and goes with it, you know. And makes it cool a bit as well. I mean, I was just thinking about, you know, Vespers and Umbrettas and the, the, the association with Italy and being cool, and then you had the, what was it, the Triumph Tigress, the scooter, which was... A bit later, it, but the set Viceroy, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> An even better machine. <laughs> so that kind of reaction to you know a market. Yeah. I noticed you're not one of those. That. Not no, one of those <laughs> sitting out here on it. No, but I can do you a, a BSA Sunbeam. Uh, yeah, I had the it's engine. BSA board. man. Yes, yeah. that was a spectacularly um, it, it spectacularly bad, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, like the Viceroy or the BSA Dandy. <laughs> I mean, you know, and a winner with a name oh, like that, that's a real, black, you know, or Beagle, even better, the BSA Beagle, you know, that's a catchy name, isn't it? Go to work on a Beagle. You know. <laughs> Triumph Terrier. <laughs> I'd never thought about that, of course, Triumph had the Terrier, so, well, we have, oh, we'll have a Beagle, you know. But there, yeah, a lot of British, I went to, um, at the Haynes Motor Museum. And, um, okay, cool. And they, uh, they had... Uh, a display of British scooters there, and it's surprising how many how many yeah. manufacturers there were, yeah. um, you know, in Britain who all decided at the last minute they were going to yeah. try and make something as good as the Italian because they'd just been caught on the hot. They had, yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, there was some pretty atrocious pretty machines. Awful things, yeah. Swallow gadabout. <laughs> A what, sorry? <laughs> a swallow gadabout. I have to say that was a little earlier than that. It swallow was. being the manufacturer, was it? Swallow, yeah. Yeah, Swallow, the sidecar company. Yeah, and the Rally Wisp and all those. But, no, the scooters were... Is it Dayton Albatross, I think that? Dayton Albatross. <laughs> it was a DWA. Well, number one, I know. Yeah. But a lot of manufacturers, but, again, there were, most of them were based around a Villiers engine, weren't they? Yeah. Apart from... BSA and thing, but there again, when they developed 
a 250 twin to put in that scooter mm. and never put it in a bike. So it had the... The Tigress, you mean? The Tigress engine, yeah. yeah. So it had... There was room for development there yeah. to make a, a British 250 twin. Fantastic, know, yeah. It was better it than the Norton... Motor, Norton yeah. Jubilee. It's pretty... Pretty gruesome. Mm. But... <laughs> We've all got one of them in here, haven't we? No. <laughs> but they make some pretty little bikes. I mean, you've got the, the Velocet Valiant upstairs, haven't you? The green one, yeah, which I've got yes. more than a passing interest in. I think it's a very pretty little yeah, bike. Are, yeah. But that looks like a BMW. It's a... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure you wouldn't just have a BMW. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When it's, a, it's the air-cooled version of the LE, and it makes it a little bit more, a little bit simpler and less prone to, to like, water in the cylinders and that sort of thing. I, don't, I think they were fragile. I haven't used that bike at all since I bought yeah. it. And uh, I think they were a bit fragile. But, but some people say they used to go quite well, but only 200 cc. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. an opportunity missed, yeah, wasn't it? That, you know, if you've gone to that amount of trouble to develop mm. something like that, you know. But to be fair, but Douglas had the same problem. They had a, a lacking luster. They did, yeah, the dragonfly and stuff like bike that. For yeah. a long time. And, uh, it never really caught on. More of a gentleman's machine than, than the, you know. Yeah, that's right. I don't really know how BMW managed to get such a good name. I mean, they started with small stuff, they? particularly a 450. I mean, was a yeah, no, no, yeah. <laughs> it's a bone of contention, that one. Well, have you got one? Or no, you I haven't got one. But you want uh, one or you well, Phil, Phil swears blind that he's been seeing this Phantom 450 around, the yeah, R45, so, which so I don't so understand. Yeah. And yeah. Is that a single cylinder one? No, no it's, it's a twin. It's just a, yeah, it's a oh, right. slash six. They did make a single cylinder, didn't they? They did. Uh, yeah. Well, they just dropped it sideways and put one on the other bit, didn't they? When they the bottom bit the didn't get knocked off or anything no, like that. Yeah. No, he just plopped it sideways and stuck another bit on the end of the crank. They did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, it's just yeah, it's like a car. So the twins, a twin version of the single, as opposed yeah. to the single being half a twin then? No. That's right. They all started as singles. Right at the very beginning? Yeah, I think so. I don't think they had... That, twins, the twins, the boxers came quite late, I think, in BMW's history. I know. Yeah, I'm going to say... Very early ones. 40s, 50s, something like that. I thought it was 30s, yeah. wasn't it? Did they make a flat twin, didn't they? Uh, side valve, weren't they? The very first ones. I don't know. Need to look at that. I have to return to that. The answer yeah. will be on... Uh, the next podcast. Yeah, we'll do a podcast on German <laughs> on, the, on the German bikes. Yeah. Get it corrected anyway. Yeah, <laughs> well, <that was> <laughs> yeah the Ger so yeah. German German listeners, please write in. You know, yes. we'll give them Tim's address. So <laughs> <laughs> right, people are very welcome to to join in if they want to. Okay, we're um, we're way over an hour now, which is good. Um, but I just wanted to uh, the, probably the final question. What's your favourite bike? If you had to choose, if 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 the of those that I've had, yeah, or, or if um, let's or say those, whatever, that you even though yeah, the, the, those you covered, that's a good way of doing it. Yeah, so um, if you had a choice of any bike, if, if there was a big shed full of bikes and it was on fire and you had to rescue one bike, what would it be? That one, the Versa. <laughs> wow. That that I mean, to be fair, he did voluntarily say that that he thinks. That a single cylinder machine is the thing that he really loves. He saw Dominic earlier in the week. And that one, and I agree with him, is the best handling British bike we've ever ridden. So I think you need to, because this is an audio thing, not a visual thing, can you describe the bike you're pointing at, please? It's gorgeous. It's a clubmanised Velocet Venom, but clubmanised in the early 60s. Its, it's steering is, in, is just p perfection. Front brake is magnificent you just feel all of a piece with the bike i mean you could have a bit more um, sponge underneath your arcs but that's about the only criticism i've had of it maybe but you don't more, think about that yeah. when you're riding it no, do you? you that's don't. the thing because you just and it's it it's i just had a very short no. ride on it i've never been on it before and you just feel that you if you owned it for some time you would just become part of it yeah it, it's, it's sublime and it's got 
everything that you would want, really. Yeah. It's a very beautiful bike. Genuinely, I've never ridden a better bike than that when it comes to handling. And I've had it at speed as well as locally. This is your French trip yeah, bike, isn't it? that's right. I think what we'll probably do is we'll put this on the cover of the of this podcast so that people can see what we're talking about. Because it's a very, it's very one, pretty it's bike. It's the one that starts in the music that you've got, but it's yeah. flooded and it's a terrible bit of audio you've got. <laughs> because it's, it's chuffing and four-stroking four all sorts of stuff. It's not what the fella set sounds like at all, but that was just an embarrassing moment, too much tickler. Luckily I put music over the top of it. Anyway, right, so... On that note, uh, say thank you to the two of you for your time. It's been thank an absolute pleasure. Uh, we might have to do this again because I'm sure there's a lot more stories in that head, Pete. But uh, we could talk about two stories. Mr. We could talk about yeah. two stories. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but until next time, <laughs> thanks all. <laughs>